This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. You're listening to Live and Learn with me, Dr. Johan. Back in July, Law Minister Dato Sri Azalina Othman Said mentioned that the government is studying the establishment of a sentencing council to review all criminal sentences, including drug-related sentences in Malaysian legislations. The former law minister, um, Wan Junaidi Tuan Kujafa, said something similar last October, adding that the sentencing council would be an independent public body similar to the council established in the UK. But what exactly is the UK Sentencing Council? Joining me on the show today to help me contextualise everything is Jessica Jacobson. She's a Professor of Criminal Justice and the Director of Institute for Crime and Justice Policy Research at Birkbeck University of London. And also Mai Sato, Associate Professor and a Director of Elios Justice at Monash University. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. So, um, Jessica, this is the first time you're coming on the show. Before we dive into the topic, I'd just like to get to know you a little bit better. Um, perhaps you can start by giving us a brief introduction of yourself and what you do exactly. Sure. So, I'm Director of the Institute for Crime and Justice Policy Research at Birkbeck. We are an institute that carries out what we describe as academically grounded, policy-oriented research on many different aspects of justice. So, we do research that aims to generate knowledge about justice, to inform public and policy debate about justice, and ultimately to improve practice within the justice system. And my, um, you've come on the show before, but just for those who may not know you, may not be very familiar, tell us about yourself. Yep. So I'm the director of Elios Justice and Elios does research, teaching and uh, advocates for abolition of the death penalty in the Asia region. All right. So let's talk about the UK Sentencing Council. It's something very new to Malaysia. Um, can you provide an overview of the Sentencing Council? How did it come to be and what is its role? Well, the council was set up by the Coroners and Justice Act in two, 2009. And the context of the establishment of the council was growing concern about inconsistencies in sentencing practice across England and Wales which reflected wide judicial discretion in sentence decision-making and also concerns about a rapidly rising prison population and continuing public and political pressures for ever tougher sentences. So it was hoped that a, sentence, a sentencing commission would, by providing guidance for sentences, help to improve consistency, transparency in sentencing practice. So when you talk about inconsistencies, what exactly do you mean? Well, inconsistencies in terms of the individual sentences passed by sentences, by judges, differ between judges, between courts, between areas. And also there is an element of inconsistency over time because sentences were typically getting tougher. And the result of that was a rising prison population. Could you give me an example of what an inconsistency might look like? So sentences have wide discretion, or they certainly had wide discretion. So what might, an offence that might lead to custody, a, a substantial custodial sentence passed by one judge could result in a tough community penalty passed by another judge for the same offence in very similar circumstances. Right. And what was the core philosophy behind pushing to establish a sentencing council? 
I suppose the core philosophy was the idea that guidance, which would structure the, the discretion of judges, so it wouldn't do away with discretion, but it would provide a, a clearer framework within which sentence decisions were to be made, would ensure greater consistency. And predictability as well was an important concern because there were worries that the demand for prison places was outstripping the supply. So it was hoped that the Sentencing Council would also be involved in research and policy analysis, which could assess to what extent, say, changes in sentencing law might result in growing demand for prison places that would outstrip supply. You also brought up something um, very interesting where you said one of the reasons this was um, established was, number one, to address the inconsistencies and also to talk about uh, or to address the issue of overcrowding prisons, right? Why is that in a problem? Why is overcrowding a problem? It's just pr prison conditions are very poor in many prisons. It reduces any scope for rehabilitation within prison sentences. Uh, potentially has an impact on increasing levels of, of reoffending post-release. And I believe in Malaysia, overcrowding is also a problem. It's, and it's a huge problem. And, and that's exactly right. It's a huge problem. And, but it's also a problem that I think many people don't seem to grasp. Why is overcrowding of prisons a, a problem? How does it affect society at large? How does it affect people? Mm. Well, um, imprisonment is basically loss of liberty. And so basic conditions need to be met. But if it's overcrowded, then you may not have enough beds, you may not enough um, provide sanitary conditions. So that's not a condition that we've signed up for as a society, uh, criminal law, um, protection of human rights. So in that sense, it is a problem. And I think it's a sign of how society is willing to treat those who are imprisoned. And if we want to rehabilitate, being in an overcrowded, unhygienic prison isn't a way to rehabilitate for them to be reintegrated back to the community. So I think we can make a utilitarian argument as to why overcrowding is poor as well. Yes, there are certainly wider social harms associated with overcrowding because of means poor provision of rehabilitation services within prison, which, as I said, can lead to reoffending outside prison and health problems as well, which will multiply in prison settings and can have an impact beyond the prison walls. Absolutely. So now back to the um, UK Sentencing Council, right? Uh, can you describe the process of implementing the UK Sentencing Council? How exactly does it work? Yes, I would say that the main sort of activity of the UK Sentencing Council is issuing sentencing guidelines. Mm -hmm. And um, you, in, sentencing guidelines in England and Wales currently have 221 sentencing guidelines for specific offences. Right. And, um, and that doesn't cover all of the offences. And for the offences that aren't covered, uh, the Sentencing Council has an overall guideline. But just to give you a flavour of how these um, sentencing guidelines work, it's basically to guide the judges to assess the seriousness of the offence. And so the judge first does this test of, you know, what was the harm? What was the culpability of the offender? And by answering that, um, the judge is guided to a range of um, punishments. So it could be from three years to five years imprisonment. And then there's a starting point in the middle. Next right. step, 
step is then the judge looks at all the list of aggravating and mitigating circumstances, and within that range,、um, the judge can adjust the appropriate sentence. And then the judge could also think about, you know, was there a guilty plea?、Uh, was there assistance provided to、uh, the prosecution, and so forth? And then arrive at the、uh, the final sentence. So sentencing guidelines, it's not to get rid of discretion by judges. It's it's intended to provide structured discretion. Let's dive into that a little bit more because、um, some critiques、um, or some might have this this concern that、um, a sentencing council would then sort of infringe upon the independence of the judiciary.、Um, how do we prevent that? And could you also like sort of、um, contextualize? Let's say you know we have a crime committed.、Um, when does the sentencing council come in? When does the judge come in? And, and things like that.、Mm. There were certainly concerns about discretion being too restricted under the guidelines regime, but I think for the most part, judges have accepted that they retain sufficient discretion within it because the guidelines set starting points and broad ranges for sentencing within which, then, as Mai said, it's possible to adjust upwards or downwards depending on the individual circumstances of the offender, the particular harms caused by the offence. And other factors, including mitigating factors. Secondly, judges are in a majority on the sentencing council itself, so there is significant judicial input into the development of guidelines, and I think that provides reassurance to the judiciary generally that the guidelines support their role rather than undermines it. To get a better clarity on this, right? So, would you say that basically the sentencing council's job is to essentially provide guidelines in which judges from all over the country can refer to, so that you know, in in whatever、um, judgment that they are about to make, whatever sentence they are about to give out, it's sort of like they can refer to the guidelines in so and so cases.、Um, perhaps these are the guidelines. Perhaps、um, this is the direction that you could take, and, and things like that. Is that how it works? Rather for each offence,、mm-hmm. for almost every offence, not all, there is a guideline which they will then refer to that will take them through the step-by-step approach, saying these are the factors you need to consider at, at each stage of the process. Right. So, how has the council impacted the UK's criminal justice system?、Um, what was it like before the sentencing council, and what has the sentencing council changed? I think the council has produced greater consistency in sentencing practice. I mean, there isn't a very large amount of evidence on this. It's quite a difficult thing to measure, but the evidence that there is suggests that there is probably more consistency. There's more transparency, and that it's clearer to the public, to anybody else involved in the criminal justice system, how sentences are, are reached.、Um, What, it, what the council has been less successful in doing so far, I think, is improving public confidence in the criminal justice system. Confidence levels appear to still remain low. There isn't a great deal of public knowledge or understanding of sentencing, and that's something that is within the remit of the council. But it could do more to address. So that's very interesting, right? Because this question of public perception, because、um, one might ask if it's difficult to measure. How consistent,、um, like how much、uh, it has improved、um, the consistencies of the judgment、um, across the country.、Um, there's just a, a sort of、um, perception, perhaps, or, or a rough、um, idea that it has improved. 
um, then one might think that you know it's it's more to do with public perception. But if public perception hasn't really improved as well, then what would you say is really the core? What is it trying to accomplish? What has the the Sentencing Council accomplished on that front? Well, I think the core is consistency, Mm -hmm. transparency and predictability. And to a significant extent, I think it has achieved that. But public confidence has not moved in line with that. Right. So um, what would you have to say, Mai, to that? This idea that, um, you know, public confidence isn't improving, or although there's a sentencing council, because I think one of the reasons you want to come up with the sentencing council is perhaps, you know, like you said, there's inconsistencies, but also there's perhaps this, this lack of trust among the public towards the judicial system, towards the criminal justice system. So it's like, how can we improve? How can we gain the trust of the public? But it doesn't seem to um, do that. Why do you think that is? I'm not sure how much of public engagement work that the Sentencing Council has done. To date, Sentencing Council in England and Wales has been very clear that their main activity is, you know, issuing sentencing guidelines mm-hmm. and improving inconsistency. And of course, you know, improving trust in the criminal justice system is part of their remit, but that's a secondary remit. So right. I'm not sure how much has been done, but the Council has done some work on trying to align public preference for sentence and to compare that with um, sentencing practices to ensure that to that level there's some sort of um, alignment between uh, public preference for sentencing and actual sentencing. All right, we're going to go for a very quick break now. On the show with me today are Jessica Jacobson, Professor of Criminal Justice and the Director of the Institute for Crime and Justice Policy Research at Birkbeck University of London. Also on the show with me is Mai Sato. She's also an associate professor and also a director of Elios Justice at Monash University. We continue our conversation after these messages. Keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn. I'm Dashan Johan and in the studio with me today are Jessica Jacobson, professor of criminal justice and a director of Institute for Crime and Justice Policy Research at Birkbeck University of London as well as Mai Sato. She's an associate professor. She's also the director of Elios Justice at Monash University. And we're discussing the UK Sentencing Council or more more specifically, the Sentencing Council of England and Wales and how it can be implemented in Malaysia. So... What are some of the notable successes and accomplishments? I know, like you said, when it comes to inconsistencies and all, it's difficult to measure. But broadly speaking, how successful do you think the UK Sentencing Council has been since its establishment? Um, Are there any notable um, accomplishments? I think what's notable is that it has produced a wide range of guidelines, quite detailed, that set out this structure in each case. And I think... For the most part, the judiciary are content with the guidelines. So there is broad compliance as as far as we are able to assess. And they have also carried out evaluations of the impacts of the guidelines to some extent where they've looked at whether they've changed sentencing practice over time. And there the picture is mixed. In some cases, though, they appear to have contributed to some growth and severity of sentences. In other cases, sentencing has remained at a similar kind of level. So it's done a lot of work on the guidelines, but that's very much where its focus has been. Mm. 
another thing that um, when we talk about, let's say, coming up with sentencing councils or just any other independent body, right? The question then is, what exactly does being independent mean? Where is the UK Sentencing Council parked under and who appoints the chief and advisory panel of the Sentencing Council? So the Sentencing Council is a non-departmental public body based in or attached to the Ministry of Justice. It's also known as an independent arm's length body. So it has independence in the sense that it operates as a distinct entity, but it is within the, the purview of the Ministry of Justice. Its members are appointed, well, the judicial members, eight of the 14 members of the council are judicial mm -hmm. and they are appointed by the Lord Chief Justice right. with agreement of the Lord Chancellor. And then there are six members who are non-judicial, so they represent different parts of the criminal justice system and they are appointed by the Lord Chancellor with the agreement of the Lord Chief Justice. Right. So... How does the government, because it is under the Ministry of Justice, right? So, for example, in Malaysia, there are certain bodies that are considered independent. The problem um, sort of um, that, pe that we, we run into is that they are ultimately, that the executive in Malaysia, which is the prime minister's chambers, has enormous powers. And so a lot of the appointments are done um, you know, that or have to go through the essentially the prime minister's chambers. And then again, then that question of independence arises, right? Because every time you change the prime minister, all these people, they can get changed, you know, and, and then you get new people there. So where does that, how do you prevent these kinds of things from happening? Um, how do you contextualize that for us? Uh, I think if there's going to be a sentencing council in Malaysia, perhaps it will have a similar status to the Human Rights Commission. And right. um, I don't know where it's situated, but perhaps um, the sentencing council could be situated under the parliament. Right. And then, so I think in that way, yes, it is still linked <laughs> to the state, mm -hmm. but it can probably maintain independence, although the budget will come from the state. Right. So... When it comes to the UK then, right, because like like um, Dr. Mai suggested that, you know, here um, it could be parked under the parliament um, as opposed to, you know, just being under, let's say, the executive chambers or under certain cabinet. Is it, um, you know, within the UK context, since it's under the Ministry of Justice, how much, who exactly gets to... Um, say, if there is a change of government, for example, let's say it goes from the Tories to the Labour and then vice versa and things like that, do they then have the power to just drop or change um, whoever is being appointed or is it under parliament in that sense? Well, the, the powers are set out in legislation, mm. so that would not change with the right. change of government unless there was new legislation. Right. The appointments are for three-year terms, potentially renewable, so those appointments would continue beyond the change of government. There was quite a bit of discussion when the council was set up mm. about what the role of parliament should be in relation to the council. And what was decided was that there would be no parliamentary members of the council. But when a draft guideline is issued, so prior to its finalisation and publication, it goes to a justice, the Justice Select Committee, which is a parliamentary committee of the House of Commons, for consultation. So that's the way in which Parliament has a role, but it is a very constrained and limited role. And this, uh, the Select Committee is a statutory consultee 
of the council on draft guidelines. Right. So how does the, you know, because transparency is a big factor, right, in, in all of this, right? So how does the UK Sentencing Council ensure public engagement and, and transparency in the sentencing process? In various ways. I, I should say, by the way, it is the, the Council for England and Wales. Scot right. Scotland has a separate sentencing council that was set up in 2015 as an entirely separate body. Right. Uh, but transparency is achieved partly through the, the publication of draft guidelines. It's re required that they are all published, pr all published in draft form prior to their being finalised. And then there is a process of consultation. Sometimes that includes commissioning public opinion research on the draft. So the Sentencing Council will sometimes bring in external researchers to do, let's say, focus groups with the public to ascertain public opinion. More often, they will publish and consult more generally so that there can be submissions from the public and they will take it to the Justice Select Committee, as I've mentioned, and to other bodies to receive views on the the guideline and how well it's likely to work and so on. Right. So now let's talk about Malaysia a little bit. Um, in what ways could Malaysia benefit from adopting a sentencing council or perhaps an institution that is similar? So the most obvious way would be that the Malaysian Sentencing Council will issue sentencing guidelines on um, in, uh, applying the death penalty, discretionary right. death penalty for various capital offences. And so that would, the outcome of that could be uh, improved consistency in, in um, sentencing. But also, I mean, I understand that the law minister is keen to reduce prison population and also to move towards a more, if we're talking drug policies, harm mm -hmm. reduction approach, more use of rehabilitative um, type of sentences. So you could interpret that, you know, the overall aim is to reduce prison population and the sentencing guideline for death penalty offences could be drafted in a way that um, applying the death penalty uh, for drug offences, for example, may be very difficult if you apply the Malaysian sentencing guideline for those offences. And then um, if we mirror the um, England and Wales approach, um, trust, improving trust in public confidence for sentencing and more broadly criminal justice is important. If Malaysia were to take that approach as well, then one could make the argument that public preference for sentencing needs to be aligned with actual sentencing. And we've talked about this topic on the other show, but, right. um, you know, th th there's not much support for the use of the death penalty for drug offences, in which case, yes, Malaysia has abolished a mandatory death penalty, but should there be a discretionary death penalty for the offence? So I think those are the kinds of things that the Malaysian Sentencing Council could um, engage and deal with. So that's interesting, right? So how would a sentencing council bring us to that? Because I think you bring up a, you know, Malaysia did something, took a positive step in the right direction um, in terms of abolishing the mandatory death penalty. But I think most progressive would argue that the death penalty as a whole has to go, um, you know, and, and, you know, nobody should be um, getting the death penalty for, for minor drug offences and, and things like that. So when we have a sentencing council, how will that sort of change that philosophy or how will that take us closer towards a more humane um, mm. approach to law? Yeah, I think it really depends on the remit of the Malaysian Sentencing Council. But mm. let's say the Malaysian Sentencing Council took a very restrictive approach and say we're only issuing sentencing guidelines. Even in that scenario, I think 
the use of the sentencing guidelines could really restrict the application of the death penalty in Malaysia. Let's say the Sentencing Council took a more um, wider approach in, in terms of interpreting its remit, then it could also, you know, advise um, the legislature about the sort of the possible need to move away from the death penalty if it thinks that its policy to reduce the number of people in prison and it's good to restrict anyways, then, you know, it's not inconceivable for the Sentencing Council to come up with that recommendation. What would be the downside of this, right? Because to me, it seems like a fairly straightforward um, kind of thing where why wouldn't anybody agree to this, right? It seems fairly straightforward in that sense, nothing too controversial. Were there any challenges um, when, you know, UK was trying to come up with this and, and making it happen, did you all run into any obstacles? Were, were there perhaps, um, you know, pushback by, by certain either political parties um, with, with certain ideologies or perhaps even by their judicial community and, and, and things like that? Um, were there any pushback? I think there was some judicial worry, mm-hmm. but as I said, by through the fact that the guidelines retain enough space for individualised sentencing and bringing the judiciary on board as members of the council. I think that was addressed. Otherwise, I don't think there was a great deal of contention around it. I think what has been more contentious is that, although it was set quite a broad remit in legislation, in practice, the work of the council has tended to focus quite narrowly on the production of guidelines And there is argument that it should be doing more to review policy, which is within its statutory remit, and it should be doing more to improve public knowledge and confidence. How much power would an institute like this have? And I don't necessarily mean that as how much power in in a from a position of critique, right? But just from a because the, the whole thing is they provide guidelines. Do the guidelines have to be followed? They do. In England and Wales, the law states that sentences, judges must follow the guidelines unless it is in the interest of justice not to do so. So there is an escape clause. They can say in exceptional circumstances they don't need to follow the guidelines. But they can still, because the guidelines build in this capacity to consider aggravation and mitigation at various points, even they can follow the guidelines. They don't need to resort to saying it's in the interest of justice to step away from the guidelines. I can follow the guidelines, but still take quite a broad approach to any individual sentence. Mai, you've been um, looking at also, um, you know, Malaysian progress um, over the years and things like that. What would it take to um, sort of come up with something like this and and implement it? Uh, Is it a matter of political will or is it just these sorts of ideas haven't really you know, been part of our, our, our political discourse and, and it's just about coming up with the ideas uh, and, and, and pushing it and it shouldn't face much um, sort of pushback in that regard. Yeah, I hope there will be buy-in from the judges. It's a huge step from mandatory to discretionary. And I think if we, if the, the Malaysia were to establish a sentencing council, it's, I think it's key that it's the, the judiciary needs to be the majority member. My concern is with my sort of my death penalty hat on. I mm-hmm. think it's to be celebrated that Malaysia abolished the mandatory death penalty, doesn't allow discretion and, you know, treats different cases in the same way. But having a discretionary death penalty comes with its problems 
terms of you know discrimination, arbitrariness, and the sentencing council is one step to mitigate that. But I hope Malaysia doesn't see okay, our Malaysian death penalty system is now fair and done in a proper way. Therefore, it's okay. I think if the sentencing council does some evaluations, my guess is that it will come to the conclusion that it still uh, is a pretty discriminatory application, and that so I take the view that it's not you know there's no truly equitable way to administer the death penalty and that having the discretionary death penalty with the sentencing council is just one step towards abolition, complete abolition. And before we wrap this conversation up, would each of you have a final message for us with regard to the importance of coming up with a, a sentencing council such as this? I think the critical question is remit. There are three broad functions that a council can perform. One is production of guidelines. The second is research and policy analysis that can help to inform policy change. And the third is engagement with the public to support public confidence. And I think if a council can fulfil all those three functions, then it can make a very positive, constructive change to policy and practice. Right. Oh, no, I think Jessica summarised it really well and I hope if there's a Malaysian Sentencing Council, I hope it does the second and the third remit, you know, takes um, effort in doing those two, two functions because that's where the, U- uh, sorry, not UK, uh, Sentencing Council for England and Wales have so far not done enough, in my view. Yeah. Absolutely. And on that note, Jessica, my thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thanks very much for having us on. Thank you. I've been speaking to Jessica Jacobson, Professor of Criminal Justice and the Director of Institute for Crime and Justice Policy Research at Birkbeck University of London, as well as Mai Sato, Associate Professor and the Director of Elios Justice at Monash University. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.